economics is the study of human choice in the world we live. Faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. By investigating faith in economics, we can learn how they lead to human flourishing. This is the Faith in Economics podcast, a presentation of the Gortney Institute at Ottawa University. Welcome to our show today. I'm Nate Johnson, the producer and graduate assistant for the Gortney Institute. Today in our show, we have Dr. Russ McCullough, the founder of the Gortney Institute and Wayne H. Chair of Economics. We also have Dr. Justin Clark, the Menard Family Professor of Philosophy and Ethics, Dr. Peter Jacobson, the Gortney Professor of Economic Education Research, and finally, my fellow producer and graduate assistant, Luke Graham. All right, well, we have a special guest on today, a guest that we've had in the past. We love having Rachel on to talk about what she's up to, and she's got a great new book coming out, so that's going to be the focus of our talk today. Dr. Rachel Ferguson is the director of the Free Enterprise Center at Concordia University, Chicago, assistant dean of the College of Business, and professor of business ethics. She received her PhD in philosophy with focus in political and economic philosophy from St. Louis University in 2009. Rachel is an affiliate scholar at the Acton Institute. And she is the co-author, along with historian Marcus Witcher, of the forthcoming, coming up here in May real soon. So get your get your checkbooks out. That's kind of an old phrase, isn't it? Get your checkbooks out for Black Liberation Through the Marketplace, Hope, Heartbreak, and the Promise of America. Rachel, welcome aboard again. Thanks for having me. Happy to be here. All right, so just go ahead and jump jump into this book. It's an exciting title, I think, and hope that it'll bring some new ideas and fresh things to the marketplace of ideas. Well, I don't know if you all have noticed, but things are a little tense in our country. We have some polarization, some tribalism, some tension, a lot surrounding race and our history of race relations in the United States. And so as these things were developing, you know, I lived 10 minutes from Ferguson, Missouri. I was very supportive of the entrepreneurs after the unrest there in 2015. And I started really thinking about the fact that, you know, as a lifelong classical liberal and someone who spent my academic life thinking about property rights and contract rights and the rule of law and things like that, I realized, you know, the classical liberal tradition actually has a ton to say to issues of race and discrimination. And there's a lot of famous work that's been done on it, but it's only famous amongst us, right? It's not something that people think of like, oh, let's go ask the classical liberals what to do about, you know, our issues of race or our arguments about the history. And so I thought, you know, somebody needs to kind of collect these insights together and put them in one place. And so That was my initial, you know, launching into the book. And of course, it sort of grew from there into, you know, in in a lot of directions, which we can talk about. But that's really the idea is let's have a classical liberal take on Black American history and on particularly the issues of economic exclusion and exclusion from the institutions that under economic flourishing, like property rights and contract rights and the rule of law. And then let's also think about civil society and civil society solutions, because that's where classical liberals really shine. Rachel, what would be your simplest uh, definition for some of our listeners who classical liberal doesn't mean anything too much? What are you getting at in the most simplest way of what a classical liberal is? Yeah, well, we can go back to the word liberal, which comes from liber, meaning free. And so just for since I'm assuming most of our audience is American. It's important to note that in America and now even in Canada, the term liberal is used totally differently from how it's used anywhere else in the world. And it's also different from how it's used in philosophy. So in political philosophy, when we say liberal, 
we mean a system of government that's focused on individual rights. And that can be contrasted with, you know, like Aristotle's political philosophy, where you're trying to sort of make people good or virtuous. And the idea that people shouldn't be good, but that the modern, huge, pluralistic nation states that we're in now can't have that as their task. You know, that's not realistic. And so instead, we have a much more minimal sort of task for government, which, which is to protect those individual rights. And then people can pursue the good life in their voluntary communities. And so then the question just is, what are those rights? And so I just like to keep it really basic and talk about, of course, your right, you know, you own yourself, right? Your right to your own bodily integrity, but also your, your right to, to oh, you own your own labor, right? So you can sell your own labor, you can own property, you can trade property. So you have a freedom of contract, both with your labor and your property. And then, of course, all of those rights are totally meaningless if they're not protected by the rule of law. So we can say all day long that I own myself or I own my house or whatever it is. But if somebody can just come and kill me or burn down my house and nobody's going to do anything about it, you know, then that's that's not a, a very, you know, realistic way of talking about rights. So the equal protection of the rule of law is so key in a liberal society. So the the role of the government is limited to protecting and upholding individual rights. Live and mostly. let live. Yeah, live and let live. So that's mostly correct. And the only the only exceptions are going to be certain things, problems and externalities problems. Right, which are just things where the incentive structure makes it hard for the market to address, and that's things like national defense. Right, it's it's a little hard to imagine, you know, corporations, <laughs> you know, creating national defense in such a way that you know we, it would be paid for, and we would get as much as we need. Um, now, some anarchists think about that kind of stuff, but in general, classical liberals think that there's just those few exceptions. But other than that, yes, it's all about protection of individual rights. All right. So then back to the book here, you've got Black liberation through the marketplace. So how has this liberation kind of manifested itself in free markets, presumably? Yeah, exactly. So, you know, we actually kind of go all the way back um, and we look at the violation of these of these rights. Right. And so we look at the ways in which, you know, we, we kind of praise the American project. We say that, you know, the Constitution is a yes document. Frederick Douglass thought it was a glorious liberty document. Right. But what did he say? Is it, it it's whether or not Americans have honor enough and courage enough to live up to their own constitution. Right. That's the point. And so the tension in American history is between a really, really good ideal and the inclusion of everyone in that ideal. And so we look at ways in which people were excluded and ways in which they pushed past obstacles and did amazing things. And so we have a whole chapter on uh, Black entrepreneurship, looking at people like Madam C.J. Walker and John H. Johnson and T.R.M. Howard. I mean, Madam C.J. Walker was next door neighbors with Henry Ford. I mean, she was so rich. You know, she, it was amazing how rich she got. And, and she was a hair care magnate. And, and she had sales ladies. I mean, she made a lot of other people rich too. You know, and these sales ladies went door to door and did very well. And uh, just an amazing story. And John H. Johnson was the great publishing magnate, right? Jet Magazine, Ebony Magazine, so important to Black history and even civil rights. He's the one who published the picture of Emmett Till's body in his coffin, right? That was such a pivotal moment in the civil rights movement where everybody kind of woke up to the sort of injustices that Black people were suffering in the South. So, so you see this actual connect, strong connection, actually, between those who were able to be successful in the marketplace and the fight for equal political rights and equal rights of citizenship. The two are not disconnected at all. 
And then we also use the term marketplace rather than market, because one of the things we wanted to emphasize is civil society. So, you know, it's so easy to talk about the state and it's so easy to talk about the market. So one is sort of coercion, right? And the other one is buying and selling. But most of our life is about civil society, not buying and selling and not forcing, right? But rather just voluntary associations. And so we have a significant chapter on the Black church, which is uh, the womb, the cultural womb of Black America, so important to its history. And we also emphasize, you know, the fraternal societies, the mutual aid societies, you know, the spread of Black education, the huge leap in literacy between emancipation and 1910 you know, to majority literacy, because there was just all of this civil society push for advancement. And so really a a wonderful story that needs to be told and shows the power of voluntary association. Rachel, I have a question kind of along this topic that you were going on. I think that, you know, a lot of times we have this conversation and people will say that uh, things like, well, capitalism, you know, allowed for even incentivized things like the slave trade and things like that. And oftentimes our response as classic liberals are, well, that's sort of a, that's not a a no true Scotsman thing. Like that's not what capitalism is is about. Capitalism is actually about a voluntary exchange. And this is not an example of that. But what would you say to maybe like a steel man response to that, which is that any system that can do what you're talking about now that can exclude such a large group of people from its promises while giving those promises to someone else is not a system that's worth supporting or keeping. What would you say to that sort of response? Because I I think that's maybe like the better version of the arguments. Yeah, no, that's what a great question. A couple preliminary points. So I don't actually use the term capitalism in the book at all. Okay. I use the term free markets and and the reason is part partially what you're saying, right? To to many people and not inaccurately historically speaking, the term capitalism is tied up with oppression, you know, various forms of oppression, but also even just cronyism, right? As we see both then and now. And so I really want to be very clear that I'm talking about free markets. Um I think one way of answering this question is to say you know, classical liberalism isn't very old. It's only a couple of hundred years old. And so the idea that, you know, we would get it perfect right out of the gate, I think is unrealistic that you have these historic ethnic, you know, issues and hatreds and and even just institutions that are carried over from what was happening prior to the real explosion of that we see right around 1800. And so, you know, that's part of it is just kind of a historical realism, like, hey, we're just getting better. But I also specifically address this whole argument in the chapter, uh, chapter two, where I look at the 1619 project. And I'm specifically looking at the essay by Matthew Desmond, where he tries to make a connection between the Southern planters and modern capitalism. This is a very weird argument, by the way, historically hated capitalism and associated with northern cold cash nexus of the northern industrialists, you know, and saw themselves as aristocrats. But nevertheless, he makes this connection. And so what I do is I, I try to look at this whole new history of capitalism where the claim seems to be that really slavery was a great way to build wealth, right? And that in, the, you know, these that white people, you know, exploited people and got rich off of it. And, you know, that that's how capitalism works, right? And so what I go back and do is look at all of the costs and here's economics, not so the moral, the moral case is obvious, but looking at the economic case with regard to slavery, and there's this whole debate 
historically between economists and historians on this, where the economists, all the way back to Adam Smith, right, are saying Adam Smith was an abolitionist. And uh, actually the, the term, what's the derogatory term for economics, Russ? The, the dismal science. science. Yeah. Yeah. The dismal science. Sorry, it went out of my head there for a second. The dismal science actually comes from the idea that economists treat people like they're, they're basically the same and they have the same kinds of incentives. And, and the eugenicists and the racists thought that was gross. And so they called them the dismal scientists. Um, but they were actually just egalitarians in a certain way, right? And so what I do is I go back and look at the true costs of slavery. And there's really been very good work done on this where you can see slavery as, as almost like pollution. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a highly costly institution. And number one, the egalitarians, so they take the cost to the slaves themselves into account, right? Their preferences are not being maximized. That's part of the utility, you know, the utility, right, is the experience of the slaves. Then you have the ways in which it lowers interest in innovation. Okay. And so you have the South, I mean, 50 years after everyone's using the steam engine, they've got manual labor, people handing pails of water down a line, you know, I mean, just really crazy lack of innovation, uh, failure to invest in infrastructure, things that I mean, the South was agricultural, but it had certain things it needed to industrialize. It did not until after emancipation, you know, and I could go on and on. I mean, I have a very long section on this in chapter two, where the costs of enforcing something that was basically nonsensical, right? So how do you have property that has a will? Okay. And so you go to court with all these crazy questions about, about what, slaves can do or not do. And it's very confusing legally. And then you have to enforce it by dragging whites into it and making them run, run after runaway slaves, you know, and so poor whites are alienated because now they're making lower wages because they're competing with free labor. They're actually kind of anti-slavery because they know that's the case, you know, really interesting stuff. And then you have long-term consequences. And the thing is, this is true now, right? So we can look now at slavery across the world and see that economies that are based in this kind of oppression are not the economies that are flourishing, right? That's not how you get flourishing. How in the world could you make yourself richer by taking a whole group of people, not letting them move anywhere, not letting them learn anything, not letting them improve their human capital, right? And not trading with them. That's a terrible way to, to get richer. And I think it's really important for us to push back on the new history of capitalism. I'm not saying that the idea of centering Black history isn't important. I think it is important. But the 1619 Project just made really big mistakes, I think. And they not only made what I'm arguing is kind of an ideological mistake here, but they actually made like literal math mistakes. And so, you know, where they thought, for instance, that cotton made up 50% of the American economy. Cotton makes up 5% of the American economy in the pre-emancipation South. So they just, I mean, off by factor of 10. I mean, just really, really bad mistakes in that particular essay. So um, I do spend some time addressing your, your point there. I'm glad that you're steel manning it. I think that's really important to do. I think I got lost a little bit in that your argument, you thought you want something stronger than to say that's not capitalism, right? Sure. Okay. Yeah. So then what is what is that institution or what what's the argument back that is the steel man? Well, I, I think I think Rachel mentioned at the, the beginning the that one of the big arguments is that these things predated capitalism. Like these, oh, yeah, the, the bad institutions. I like that. I wrote that down and, on my notes. And, 200 or, years or old. For, for, we'll say free markets. Let's, let's use <laughs> yeah. the terms you used in the book. Free, yeah. the, these institutions of discrimination 
predate free markets. That, that's a great point. That's a great, and it wasn't easy one for people yeah, to understand. And, and it wasn't long after free markets came on the scene that it was revised. So I think there was at least the first part of your argument was a, an appeal to the idea that like, well, you know, things take time, basically. Yeah. And so you're really saying yeah. how lot free markets have only helped along the way. It's been a process, right? So you, yeah. somebody yeah. pushes back on you and you say, well, how long has slavery been around? And, oh, it's in the Bible and blah, 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 2000 years. And hey, free markets have only been around for 200. So And the transatlantic did- slave trade is several hundred years, even just that particular slave trade, right? Is several hundred years before we really see, you know, a true commitment, a true movement from mercantilism to market economics right? right. Um, in the I, mid I a- 18th century. I took a big thing that Rachel was saying, correct me if I'm wrong here, Rachel, is that insofar as economists are dismal bean counting efficiency maximizers, <laughs> um, your argument was that slavery actually was inefficient. And so the the claim to to tar this as a, a capitalist, you know, maximizing activity is just empirically false. Was that something that you were saying too? Yes, but but let me just be clear. I'm saying okay. that it was inefficient in comparison to if everyone was free, right? So I don't mean yeah. that some yeah. people didn't get very rich. Some sure. people got very rich. Now, Southern planters didn't get any richer than Northern industrialists <laughs> did. They didn't make higher profit margins than that. But they they as a group, and this is just like any form of, of uh, violent extraction, right? And right. so, yeah, a pirate can get rich off of being a pirate, but he's not part of a productive economy. Yeah. And when we're talking about free markets, we're talking about being productive, not just, not just gay violent extraction. All right. Well, this looks like a good spot to go for our break. And when we come back, one of my questions from early on your description was, did did these successful Blacks really help lead the way? Like, were they the primary thing that helped liberate more and more Blacks? Was 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 it a key thing? So when we get back from break, I'd like you to tackle that one. We'll be back in just a bit. Please visit our website. There you'll find our events, blog, and swag shop. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at 123PovertySucks or on Facebook at Gordon Institute for updates on our activities and research. The Gordon Institute at Ottawa University is the best place in the Midwest for students interested in freedom and justice and its impact on human flourishing. Faith and economics in action. If you have some high school students that are interested in these types of issues we discuss, we've got a great affiliate membership for high school students. All you have to do is attend some of our programming. We've done some Bitcoin book clubs and uh, presentations like our Inflation Fools and other upcoming events that you can check out on our website. If you're interested in something like that or have a high school student that is, contact Justin, Peter, or Russ today. If you enjoy our podcast and want to support our work, please consider a one-time or recurring donation. Please visit donate.123povertysucks.org. All right. Welcome back. And so I'd like uh, Rachel to address that question. I, I was hearing that these successful Blacks might have been a real important figures for maybe other Blacks to look to that helped break down barriers as they thought, well, if they can do it, I can do it type of thing. And I didn't know how strong that was in, in part of your arguments with, with what you're doing with the book. Yeah, so there is a really interesting story to tell about middle and upper income Black community that came out of Virginia, Hampton Institute, uh, Booker T. Washington came out of Hampton Institute. Property ownership and uh, Black property ownership in Virginia just far exceeded any other state because there was such an emphasis on it in that community. 
Booker T. Washington, right? They called him the leader of the race at that time. And, and he's got this whole dream of economic uplift. But you really can't tell that story without telling, without talking about the Black church. So, and this is what I actually discovered along the way. I didn't necessarily have the Black church in my original outline for the book. But the Black church is so central to the Black American experience because it was the one institution in which Black people were really in charge. You know, it was truly independent. And their leadership mattered, right? And it was also, you know, a, a place where they could gather and kind of do everything that they needed to do because it was an area of freedom. It was a kind of haven. And so you were doing church, but you were also doing politics and you were also doing business networking and you were doing education and everything had to, in some sense, come through the Black church. And it's really important for us as white Christians to understand that the Black church had certain theological insights that were really uh, profound. And so, for instance, a heavy emphasis on Genesis 1 and on the theology of creation, because, of course, Black Christians, as soon as they became converted during the uh, Great Awakenings, they were immediately struck by this claim that we are all made in the image of God, right? And that makes, means we're all infinitely valuable, we have inherent dignity, and we're equal we're all God's children. And they were like, whoa, I mean, they were really, really struck by this. And then the Black church has a very high view of scripture, and it's very rooted in the Old Testament, particularly the Exodus, right? And the, the story of, of Moses and, and releasing the Hebrews. And so there's really a, there, there's no sort of sacred secular divide, one might say, in, in, in the Black church tradition. There, it's a much more, uh, there's a kind of marriage between the idea of the conversion of my soul as an individual and the, you know, sort of improvement of justice on the earth, right? Those things just go together. There's no sense of why they would be separate. And so when the modernist fundamentalist debates arose, and you had one side going social gospel and the other side going, you know, orthodox doctrine, the black church was like, what are you doing? Why would you split? You know, like, and it just made no sense to them. Like, obviously, the two go together. And so you see this push for the group economy and the betterment of Black Americans coming right out of the church, they immediately start opening schools, right? That leads to things like Hampton and Tuskegee. They're churning out teachers. They're, pro they're good Protestants, right? So they want to read the Bible. Everyone's churning out teachers. And at the same time, Booker T. Washington is really pushing this economic uplift story. And Washington gets a bad rap because he was in the South and had to say some things that don't sound very politically correct today about black and white relationships. But the truth is, is that if it weren't for Booker T. Washington, you wouldn't have this class of people who then did things like fund the NAACP, right? You know, they were the ones who made it possible to hire all these lawyers and take cases to the Supreme Court and so forth. It was T.R.M. Howard and his, and his uh, he was a, a hospital, black hospital entrepreneur. And, you know, he had all of these guns. He was a, he was a big uh, gun connoisseur. And TRM Howard was hosting these early civil rights meetings with heavy security, you know, saying to the white community, hey, we're not trying to start anything, but you have to respect our space, right? And he's hosting these early meetings, protecting the family of Emmett Till, you know, wh while the murder trial is going on. He's um, mentoring people like Fannie Lou Hamer. And so these Black entrepreneurs coming out of this thick civil society out of the Black church are hugely influential in the civil rights movement but kind of get forgotten sometimes because they were the funders, right? And not necessarily the ones out there in front. Well, let's get into some of the government stuff in terms of barriers, maybe, and the 
first half or second half of, of the century? How did that play into things? Did the government help or hurt overall as they got involved <laughs> in trying to liberate Blacks? Well, it's important to understand that at the turn of the century, we're dealing with the progressive era, right? And so I'm using progressivism in that sense. It's a political philosophy that focuses on the rule of experts and central planning. It's a kind of scientism. You might think of it that way. And the progressives are serious eugenicists. I mean, this is a biological racism we're talking about. Not, you know, I don't like black people. This is, here's how you rank the races and we need to keep Aryan families pure and strong and we need to exclude everyone. They actually came up with the idea of the minimum wage. They were very public about this, by the way. Major economics textbooks claimed that we could use a high minimum wage to exclude what they called unemployables, meaning foreigners, black people, women and children. And uh, they could exclude them through this high minimum wage because no one would pay them that. And then they could sort of die off and uh, not the women and children, obviously, they would be with their Aryan husbands. But, you know, but the rest of of the uh, quote unquote unemployables, it was really kind of an insane view, but it was extremely popular in the early part of the century, which we forget because Hitler gave it a bad name and everybody hush hushed and stopped talking about it. But it was, um, you know, presidents, presidents, cabinets, people were full (coughs) of eugenicists. Teddy Roosevelt was eugenicist. You know, Woodrow Wilson was a terrible racist who resegregated the federal government, you know, wouldn't listen to Booker T. Washington's pleas, you know, terrible history. And so as time progresses, this sort of scientistic attitude, what Adam Smith would call the man of system, they try to control the way that whites and blacks are are dealing with each other. And so not just in employment, but also in housing. Now, redlining is very famous So people know that the Federal Housing Administration would not approve bank loans for Black neighborhoods and integrated neighborhoods. So it hurt a lot of white people too, often immigrants, um, because they didn't want integrated neighborhoods either. And most of these people lived close to their jobs. So they lived maybe on a different street, but very near each other. And so that was a disaster. But what a lot of people don't know is that there were two other programs, the Federal Highway Program and Urban Renewal, which James Baldwin called Negro Removal. And the idea there was sort of slum clearance. Uh, These people were tossed out of their neighborhoods, scattered to the four winds. They were not compensated property. And during the the building of the highways, this was incredible influence municipal governments. And so racists in the municipal governments used it to plow right through the Black economic centers and Latino out West economic centers, which may look not so hot, you know, to a middle-class white person, but were working class, upwardly mobile areas. They were, they, hmm. they were getting somewhere and they were building their civil <clears throat> society too, their business their church networks. These were blown to bits by these huge government programs social kind of engineering programs. And the specific goal was to separate the white part of town from the black part of town with a huge wall of concrete, which is what a highway is. And it was really, really, really destructive. And so you see this path, the same with the race um, massacres in places like Tulsa, Oklahoma, where black people really are living the American dream. They're pulling themselves up by their bootstraps, or at least not really by their individual bootstraps, but as a group, right? They're pulling themselves up, they're doing well, and then something comes in, either just direct violence or some kind of social engineering program, 
and just drags them back down. And so there really is truly a story to tell that crosses over our boundaries between conservative free marketeers and sort of the social justice left, right? Where you actually can say, no, you know what? This is a real story that happened. It's just that it's the state doing it. And they're violating these fundamental rights of property and contract and, and the, the protection of the rule of law in order to do so. And so conservatives and, and I think libertarians and classical liberals should be able to tell that story better you know, than they often do. What is the the resource? So that kind of blows my mind a little bit, if, if I'm understanding you right. So yeah. government says we're going to put in a four lane highway of some sort, and we're going to put it right through the major commercial center of the black neighborhood the or black the part of town or whatever. But what what yep. what resources did you have to learn that? I guess is it is it of record, even with the State Department of their intentions, or is it more of of blacks maybe protesting that hey you're putting this thing right through our town and and there's kind of documented evidence that way i'm just curious what the evidence is because i've really never heard that story <laughs> yeah so a really good book on this is called the folklore of the freeway by eric avila and i have some other uh, some other work that i collect in the book that you can see as well so that's just a quick sort of popular book you can go to to see a lot of it Avila does have the the receipts, right? It's a lot of um, notes from these municipal meetings where people are saying, well, you know, we could go through the industrial part of town, which would make sense, right? Or we could do this explicitly saying, you know, we don't like this neighborhood and we want to get rid of it. And they're not thinking through the fact that you just are displacing people and now you're sending them to some place where they don't have the thick social networks that they had been building for decades. And so it was incredibly foolish of them to do, but oftentimes it was just kind of a a thoughtless prejudice, I think, that came through in the way that the municipal planners were, were doing things. So I don't mean to say that the at the federal level, they wanted people to plan it this way. What it was is at the city level, Uh the people who were in power, always (laughs) thought of this as the most logical route to take. And there are literal cases he shows you where they consider two routes and one will blow up the black neighborhood and the other one will affect almost no one. And they pick the one blows up the black neighborhood. It's I always just think of freeways, you know, roads and bridges and infrastructure, and it's all good that it would have never been used as basically a, a weapon, essentially. Um, That's right. Or, and or a, now a there's, violence. So now there's a, a huge movement to get rid of the way that highways go through cities, because so oftentimes they're done in such a way as to make it not walkable and people can't exchange with one another. And there's already been several highways that have been ripped out and, and moved. So now we're undoing what they did. And you can see the same thing with zoning, right, Russ? Because we always complain about the way that used very racist or classist, whichever, right? The idea of not wanting high density housing. And so you make up zoning law, single residency and multiple residency because you don't want high density housing near you because poor people live in high density housing, right? Well, what do we have now? mixed zoning, right? Now everybody wants the lofts with the theater and the restaurants. Guess what? That's what everyone was building in the 1910s and 1920s until we invented (laughs) zoning so that we could be racist and, you know, and so, and what does it cost us in terms of people can't not being able to get to their jobs and things like that, right? I think zoning is a huge offender here as well. 
Well, I'd like to hear you get into some of the up-to-date stuff with solutions. You even go so boldly in your book to uh, start to make inroads on suggestions. I'm excited to hear what that what you have in mind there. Yeah, I mean, one of the points I always make before I start talking about solutions is that in many ways, Black America has been liberated marketplace. 80% of Black Americans do not live below the poverty line. They do not live in inner cities. They live in suburbs. They're doing well. Their incomes are going up. We're stuck a little bit with regard to wealth, which is an interesting debate to have, but, but things are definitely improving. As a matter of fact, they started improving before the civil rights movement. Between 1948 and 1960, Black poverty dropped from 89% to 41%. I mean, it was gargantuan drop in poverty because the economy was doing really well, right? And people were just brought along with it. And so I always make that clear that a lot of the issues we're dealing with today are really American issues. They're really Black issues, things like mass incarceration, the drug war, you know, people who are stuck in poverty in dangerous areas. Those sorts of things are affecting Black people disproportionately because of their history, but they're not just affecting Black people by any means, right? The white poverty rate is 10%, the Black poverty rate is 20%, but there's six times as many white people in this country. Okay, so there are a lot of poor white people, many of them in rural areas, right? And so the point is, is not so much that these are solutions for Black America, but these are solutions to problems that we will hear about from Black America because they disproportionately affect Black Americans. And so, um, of course, I talk about criminal justice reform. We discuss educational freedom, which I think is important. Think of what I just said about the way poor Black people were ghettoized in their neighborhoods through things like redlining highways and slum clearance. Those people are now told that they have to go to school in that zip code, right? Even though the schools are failing and dangerous to their children's mental and physical health. So educational freedom is, is a justice issue as far as I'm concerned. We talk about economic freedom. Look at that jump from 1948 to 1960. Just the fact that the economy is doing well, I think a lot of people think that rich people do better when the economy is doing well, but it doesn't poor people. But if you look at the 2008 recession, People who were lower income suffered much worse and much longer than the rest of us. They were the ones who got foreclosed on. They were the ones who were still in a recession in 2015 after we had all recovered. And so having just a strong economy is really, really important for poor need access to work, jobs, affordable housing, all of that. And then finally, and this is the one I love the most, and it's so meaningful to me, is the neighborhood stabilization movement. And so I always point people to the great books, When Helping Hurts by Brian Fickert, Toxic Charity by Robert Lupton, the work of Bob Woodson at the Woodson Center, the work of John Perkins at the Community Christian Development Association. What we're seeing is an amazing movement. And yes, it's coming out of the church. And the Christians are leading the way, even for general nonprofit administration programs. It's Christians who are writing these books, which I think is really interesting. And what they're saying is, you know, when you have this terrible history that has created this ghettoized situation and you have destabilized neighborhoods where many houses are empty, many people are unemployed, marriage has been lost, a lot of the stabilizing factors are gone. You are not going to fix that through some sort of push button policy from above. There's no way, no check in the mail is going to fix something that complex, right? And so how can you possibly address that? It has to be a totally holistic perspective, 
motivated by love, hyper local, hyper committed, eight to 10 years per block to stabilize a neighborhood and invest in the people with an attitude not of bringing in my agenda, but of finding out what their agenda is for their neighborhood and then bringing in the resources of those of us who are better resourced around them into the neighborhood and helping that agenda come to be. So it's an empowering message. It, it's, it gets us out of that poverty tourism mindset that's so dysfunctional in our churches and, and in other organizations. And it actually works. Okay. And so I always tell people, please, if you come to St. Louis, let me give you a tour with Love the Lou of the Enright neighborhood that they've been in for 10 years. And I can show you the community gardens and the beautiful homes. And I can introduce you to the students who are going to college and getting jobs, unlike their brothers and cousins who are in prison or dead. It is absolutely life-changing, but it takes real love and real commitment. And that is the only thing that will work. And so rather than continuing to put our energy into the same old progressive nonsense that caused the problem in the first place, this social engineering nonsense, we need to invest in people face to face, walking through life with them, which is really, really important to me. So does the federal government have any place in that in terms of, you know, as a former real estate developer, um, neighbor, neighborhood revitalization grants, right? Or something along those lines, subsidized loans for uh, minorities or, um, you know, is there a place for that? Or is it more is the hyper-local thought that it's private citizens that are helping to want to revitalize that? I, I still see a collective action problem that I'm not sure how it, how it goes other than organically from the bottom up. Uh, but I don't know how it starts or organizes. No, that's exactly. It is organically from the bottom up. It needs to happen. I, you know, we can argue about this or that particular policy. A, a lot of them don't work. We, we've seen this with the, um, oh, what is it? The tax-free areas, the economic, what is it? Tim Scott put together the economic freedom areas or something like that. Um, and the reason they don't work isn't because it's a bad idea. It's because commu- these communities are um, struggling so badly that they oftentimes can't even take advantage of those kinds of things. They aren't aware of them. They don't have the bandwidth to take advantage of them and make something happen with them. And so they you know, don't work, right? But not because they're a bad idea necessarily, but simply because you need that thick civil society, right? The same thing that was so helpful before things really crumbled in the 60s and 70s. It was that thick civil society that that kept the Black community strong. And that's going to be true today as well. And once again, not just the Black community, right? But also poor rural whites and Latinos out West and whatever group we're talking about. You simply cannot create stability from above. You, You just can't. And so I, I know it may be hard to believe, but if you could toxic charity and you could go down to focus community strategies in Atlanta and you could see the mixed income neighborhood that's been built, you can meet the neighbors that are still in the neighborhood that they have lived in all their lives and that their parents and grandparents lived in and they are flourishing in that neighborhood. I am telling you that it can happen and it has to happen through the church, which is a decentralized institution. And so it is a bottom up process. And I think it's more a matter of, quite frankly, I think every 
starting to sort of know that we do philanthropy wrong. This is becoming more and more well-known. You know, we make fun of ourselves for our poverty tourism, short-term mission trips, and, you know, painting the school a third time in three years. You know, these (laughs) kind of ridiculous (laughs) things we do that nobody even needs, right? But it's very hard to actually shift our model, which is why I point everyone to the Chalmers Center that Brian Fickert runs, because the Chalmers Center will actually walk your church through changing the model. Now, am I saying that you can solve poverty forever in every neighborhood? No. I mean, no country has done that, right? No one's done that. But you can make an incredible difference in on a block. You can change people's lives forever on that block. And if a lot of us did that on a lot of blocks, that could make a huge difference. And so I think we're getting close to um, the church really owning this and and, uh, making the changes they need to make. Well, Rachel, that looks like some great closing closing comments there. So I'd like to, to thank you for coming on and, and talking about the book. And uh, hopefully all of our listeners will get out there and read it. I know I'm going to be for reading it for sure and look forward to seeing its progress as, as we move through this upcoming year. Well, thank you. And let me just tell your listeners that you can pre-order on Amazon.com right now, Black Liberation Through the Marketplace. And we made it on purpose, a paperback, only 18 bucks so that it could be super accessible. It is written for a popular audience, kind of the educated layperson. And so I really hope you'll uh, take a look. Absolutely. All right. Well, this has been a production of the Gorton Institute here at Ottawa University. Thank you very much, Dr. Rachel Ferguson, for all of your words of wisdom. I know I learned quite a bit just in this little shot. I will be talking about highways differently in my uh, economics class. So that, that, that is a, a great insight. So good. <laughs> all right. We'd like to thank you all for listening. A five-star rating helps other people find us and otherwise forward this podcast and our other ones off to your friends and family so that we can increase our reach. Other than that, be fruitful and multiply. Thanks.